may be seated. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, which can be found in page 188 uh, of your pew Bible, in some of the pew Bibles. I'm going to ask the uh, scripture readers to come up. Um, Thank you. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Uh, Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to the other fields. Stay right here with the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting, and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water that they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness? I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, but I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard about how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I'm not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, Come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, Let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up, and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. The man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him. 
He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. What's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. Thanks, scripture readers. Yeah, if, if you have your Bibles turned to Ruth too, keep it open to that because we're going to be uh, referencing that from time to time. Oh. I'm wondering, do, do, do many of you still watch uh, Korean dramas? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even need to ask, okay. Um, I never watched one, but I, but I hear about them all the time from my friends. Um, Millie's mom, uh, my mother, when she was alive, they used to love watching Korean dramas, and so I would hear about them. And, some of my friends told me about an up, uh, the series. Um, it was about this guy who falls in love with this girl. I mean, they all fall in love, you know, a couple fall. Um, well, just, just to preface, too, I don't know if, 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 you've, if you've never seen one, um, like, like me, maybe you don't know what they're about, but from what I hear, and those of you who watch them will probably agree, they're, they're, the modern, these modern Korean dramas seem like these over-the-top, like, tragic love stories. Um, and so, getting back to this series I heard about, so there was this uh, series where um, this guy falls in love with this girl who was his childhood friend, and another guy who grew up with the two of them also falls in love with the girl, but the girl really loves the first guy. And then, later on in life, the girl loses her memory, and when she does, the, the second guy literally steals her away from the first guy. But then the girl eventually regains her memory back and is reunited with the guy she loves. Uh, but soon after, she finds out that she has eye cancer and she goes blind. Her only wish... Why are you laughing that someone has eye cancer? <laughs> and I don't get the... Anyway, her only wish is to, see, is to be able to see her husband one more time. And so both her husband and the, the guy who loved her tell the doctor to take out one of my eyes so she can see. But the doctor's like, no, no, we, we can't do this. It's against, you know, procedure. We can't take an eye out of a living person. So what, do you, what happens? The guy who loved her commits suicide. So the doctor can take his eye to implant in the girl so she can see her husband one last time. So the, they perform the operation, the girl regains sight, but then they find out that the cancer spreads to her brain and is inoperable, and then she dies in the arms of her husband. There's another series. <laughs> There's another series. This is even crazier to me about 
two babies accidentally switched at birth. Um, one of the children is hit by a truck as a teenager and needs a blood transfusion. Uh, and when she needs the blood transfusion, the mix-up is discovered, and the two children are reunited with their biological parents. Uh, fast forward as adults, the lead female character, who was one of the, the, the babies separated in birth, falls in love with this guy. Uh, but as with the other series, another guy falls in love with her, and jealous acts follow. The girl is soon diagnosed with leukemia, right? Someone's got to die. <laughs> and she's too weak to receive treatment. So knowing that she only has a short while to live, the guy who loved her uh, relents so that the girl can really be with the man she really loves. Uh, the, two, the two get married, but soon after, the, the leukemia spreads and the wife dies. Uh, Grief-stricken in days, the husband gets run over by a truck. <laughs> in the same spot that the girl did when she was a teenager. The end. So let me tell you, the, the, the book of Ruth, it is not like a Korean drama. Uh, I, I remember my seminary professor uh, writing in his, one of his books that the book of Ruth is just one of these really nice stories where everyone lives happily ever after. And those familiar with the story know this. But where we are now in chapter 2, the author would urge us not to get too far ahead of ourselves because it's difficult to really understand and empathize with the characters when you know what's going to happen, right? It's like the last Avengers movie. If any of you has, haven't seen the last Avengers movie, you can like close your ears for 15 seconds if you don't want to know the spoiler. Um, but you know at the end of the movie, like when all those superheroes like die or immaterialize or vanish or whatever, you know, you may walk out of the theater feeling kind of upset. I remember my daughter coming home. I, I don't remember what, exactly what term she used, but she was like in a foul mood. She was so upset. Um, but, you know, you can't really be upset for that long because Marvel is not going to give up that easily on their $100 million franchise, right? I mean, they cannot all stay dead or, you know, vanished or whatever. So, you know, here we are, like Ruth. Our tendency is to, like, jump ahead. We know the end of the story. Everyone's going to live happily ever after if you're familiar with it. But the author here in Ruth 2 is saying, don't do this. You know, many of you um, know this couple who used to attend our church and kind of moved further away from the area, so they, they attend another church. And, and many of you got emails about the husband being diagnosed with cancer. And we got, you know, recent updates that the tests, you know, were fine. Everything's going to, you know, seem like it's going to be okay and the situation just has to be monitored. But, you know, I'm sure they'll tell you that during the time when the husband was taking tests, drawing samples, waiting for lab results, waiting to meet with doctors. You know, for them, the process was just agonizing. You know, and similarly, as we get into Ruth 2 this morning, the author is going to want us to think and feel what Ruth and Naomi currently do in this moment. So to catch us up a little on where we're at so far, um, if you weren't here for the first message, uh, this was a graphic that uh, Pastor Jeff showed in his first sermon. The story begins with... Uh, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons who travel from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. Elimelech died leaving uh, Naomi to raise the two sons by herself. And the, the two sons eventually marry Moabite women, but after about 10 years, the sons die, leaving the widow Naomi with just her two daughter-in-laws. 
Um, she heard that the famine was over in Israel, and so she's preparing to go back to Israel. Uh, but she urged her daughter, who were native Moabites, to stay there because, you know, why would they move to Israel when she has nothing to offer them? One of them eventually said, okay, I'll stay here and, and return to my family in Moab, while the other, Ruth, insist, insisted on remaining with Naomi. You know, last week, the story ended, or sorry, two weeks ago, the story ended with the two women arriving back in Bethlehem and the, Naomi you know, declaring how emotional she was. You know, remember, she said, don't call me Naomi. You know, call me bitter, because that's what I am. I mean, if Naomi was alive today, you know, we would probably be, she would probably be diagnosed with, you know, clinical depression, because that's how, you know, her current state was. Once again, those of us who know the end of the story may not feel too much sympathy, because we know how the story progresses, but the author urges us not to do so, because recognize the plight that these two women are currently facing. In a culture uh, where the male is the primary breadwinner of the family, uh, there is no male to financially support them. For Ruth to be a Moabite in Israel further meant that she would be looked down upon not only for being a woman, but also for being a foreigner. The government back then had no safety net, such as welfare for the poor or immigrants, so they were left defend for themselves. And since Naomi, who's you know, clinically depressed, seems to, be, to not be able to provide for the two of them, Ruth steps up in verse 2, and she says, I'll try to provide for us. I'll go to the fields and try to gather uh, some scraps that, that are left over. And though the government had no um, welfare system in place, God, out of his love, and Grace gave the Israelites instructions as to what they were to do to kind of care for these people. In Leviticus 19, 9-10, if you can read it, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy 24, 19-21, he instructs, when you are harvesting in a field and you overlook a sheaf, do not back, go back to get it. Leave it to the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow." When you harvest the grapes in the vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And though these instructions seem pretty clear, unfortunately, the Israelites weren't very good at obeying it, which is why when you read uh, like the Minor Prophets, uh, a lot of those books, you'll see God's judgment on the people because they didn't take care of the widows, you know, the, the poor, the outcasts. So this is why Ruth, in verse 2, also says, she will glean, but she will do so behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. In other words, anyone who will permit her to go into the fields to glean. Not only did she have to find someone to allow her to work in the fields, but for someone like her, there's also an inherent danger in gleaning because the regular harvesters, once again, would look down on her as a foreigner. And as a woman, it was common in those days uh, for women and who were doing that to be sexually harassed. Um, but as we heard in the scripture reading, Ruth finds a field where the workers let her glean. The owner happens to show up and takes notice of Ruth, as we 
heard in the scripture reading, and he inquires about her. The foreman gives a glowing report about you know, her diligence, how she's faithfully worked except for a short rest. And after hearing the report, the owner speaks to Ruth to encourage her to glean in his field and only his field. We're not told like if in the morning if, if there were earlier incidents of sexual harassment, but the owner tells her the men will not touch her and she can feel comfortable getting a drink from where the men bring the water. You know, later when it was lunchtime, he invites her to lunch and gives her all she wants to eat. Afterwards, he even instructs the workers to help her out by pulling out some of the grain and the sheaves and leaving it behind for her to pick up. So, you know, though Ruth may have started out the day concerned whether she was going to be able to find a field uh, to glean in, how she might be treated as a foreigner, as a woman, you know, she gets more than she could have ever dreamed of. The owner of the field, you know, treats her more kindly than anyone expected. And in her gleaning, she's able to collect more than, any, than, any, you know, than anyone could have hoped for. At the end of verse 17, when it says she went home with about an ephah of grain, I mean, that means nothing to us. But what it amounted to was about enough food to feed Ruth and Naomi for more than one week. And that was just in one day's work. And, you know, somebody chalked this up to, like, you know, chance, good fate, she was lucky, But the author would have no such thing. He wants us to know that God was involved very much in all of this. But here's the thing. It's not until the end of the chapter, right? Until Ruth finds out what we already know. At the beginning of chapter 2, you know, we're told, you know, Naomi has a relative named Elimelech, I mean, um, from Elimelech's slide, you know, called Boaz, Uh, but his identity is not revealed all the while that she's working in the field. Even they were, when they were eating lunch, Boaz, Boaz may have told her his, you know, his name, but he didn't share with her his identity. And so the author would use the situation, her situation, to ask us, you know, the first question, you know, as we go through life questioning whether God is working, Do you believe that God is working in your life even when you can't see it? Once again, for Ruth, it's not by chance that Ruth went to glean in, as verse 3 tells us. It just turns out that she finds herself working in the field belonging to Boaz. It's not by chance that the same day Ruth starts gleaning in the field, Boaz happens to show up and decides to visit this particular field. It's not by chance that Boaz happens to notice her and inquires of her. And it's not by chance that God has blessed Boaz with you know, considerable wealth to own these fields and also possesses, possessed them with godly characteristics, and who also happens to qualify as one of their kinsmen's redeemers. You know, this is all the work of God behind the scenes, and Ruth wasn't aware of it, but God was working. You know, for some of us, we may be going through situations when, where we wonder whether God is working in our lives. Maybe we're waiting on a job offer that hasn't come through yet. Maybe there's a significant relational situation or lack of a significant relational situation we're facing. And we're wondering, is God doing anything about this? You know, for you high school seniors, maybe some of you ED'd to certain colleges and you didn't get in. And you're wondering, is God still working? Whatever the situation may be, 
Do you believe that God is working in your life for your good, even when you can't see it? For Ruth, you know, she was blown away by the kindness she received from Boaz. So she asked him in verse 10, Why have I found such favor in your eyes? Boaz responds by, by sharing how, you know, she's heard how kind she's been to Naomi and how she left her homeland to follow her mother-in-law. And we may read into this and think, yeah, well, because Naomi was such a good person, a, a good worker, so kind to her mother-in-law, that's why she's being rewarded. But that wouldn't be correct, because look at what Boaz says next in verse 12. He says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, Boaz wants Ruth to understand that it's not really Boaz who's blessing her, but God. And he asks that Ruth be rewarded because, as it says in the end of verse 12, because she has taken refuge under his wings, under God's wings. It is not for her work for Boaz that Boaz is asking a blessing for Ruth, but because Ruth has chosen to place her trust in God. She has come to believe that the God of her mother-in-law was superior to any Moabite God she could follow. So she declared to Naomi at the end of chapter 1, if you remember, your God will be my God. She was rewarded because even though she was a foreigner, she chose to place her, her trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel. It wasn't on the basis of her works, but on her faith and God's grace and mercy. And this is the gospel of Ruth, which holds true for us today. You see, Paul, in his letters to Ephesians, writes in chapter 2, and many of you have probably memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says, you know, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. You remember that, but do you remember what follows that? What, what happens in those, what does it say in those verses after that beginning in verse 12? It says this, if you can read it. It says, Remember that at that time, meaning before you received salvation, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you see, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we are reconciled back into our relationship with God, though we were outcasts and foreigners, just like Ruth. And salvation in the present, once again, means that God is working for our good, even when we can't see it. Do you believe that? Related to that is the second question in your bulletin, which I want to highlight is, Will you wait on God's timing, even if it doesn't match yours? You know, now that, now that Boaz has come into the picture, we think things are going to move rapidly to the, you know, happily ever after climax. You know, after all, we find out in this chapter that he is the kinsman redeemer. But things don't develop that fast. At the end of chapter 2, Ruth conveys to Naomi all that Boaz told her. And, he told, and so Naomi tells her to continue to stay and glean in the field until harvesting season is done. Because Naomi, knowing the dangers facing a woman 
like Ruth would face in gleaning, you know, tells her, you know, it will be good for you to stay there. And then the chapter concludes by telling us that Ruth continues to clean and glean in Boaz's fields until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. For us who are not in this situation and know, you know, know the outcome, we may just, once again, gloss this over is no big deal. <clears throat> Though their short-term needs have been provided for, you know, they're able, Ruth now is able to collect grain, provide food, you know, their long-term needs were not because the days of gleaning were limited, so it could not fend off economic hardship for an extended period of time. You know, Boa's generosity is evident, but a longer-term solution still needed to be put into place. First, we may think, oh, why doesn't she just get on with it and marry Boaz? But this isn't what we see happening at the end of chapter 2. To, alert, to elaborate, when the last verse says she gleaned until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, the total time it usually takes to complete the harvest is about two months. If you remember, Ruth and Naomi moved back right when the harvest season was about to begin. So there was this two-month period where she was gleaning in Boaz's field and nothing more happened. She still continued to live with Naomi. You know, from, you know, though we know what eventually happens, it doesn't say during this period that Boaz developed any romantic interest in Ruth or their relationship grew closer. I mean, who knows if he even went back to the field after that day. In the next chapter, we'll be made aware of another issue that they had to overcome. But, but for now, you know, Ruth faithfully continues to glean, providing for her and Naomi, not knowing what the future would hold. So as you consider whether you will trust, whether you trust God is working, even when you don't see it, will you also be content to wait in God's timing, even if it doesn't match yours. You know, I was talking to a fourth-year med student uh, the other day, and I know it can be sometimes agonizing for them until they wait until, for March to see where their residency, you know, matches. You know, I'm sure they'd love to know now exactly where they're going to be matched, but God's making them wait. You know, for you high school seniors, you may be waiting to hear from colleges. What college are you going to get in? And you'd just love to get that letter of acceptance now so that you know where you're going to go to, you know, are you at peace waiting or are you anxious? You know, do you trust in God and, and just know that he's in control or are you worried about what could happen? You know, maybe some of you, once again, are waiting to hear back from a job offer, promotion. The company told you they would get back to you by Friday, but you still haven't heard anything. Are you content waiting or are you anxiety-ridden? You know, just wondering if you should email or call the hiring manager. You know, the author of Ruth would remind us that God is working for your good, but he's doing so according to his timing. And he urges you to place, continue to place your hope and trust in him because he is faithful, even though it may be hard to see in the present. And this brings me to the last question in your outline, which I'm going to go a little off text for. Well, it's not mentioned in Ruth. I think it's an important question to address, which is, you know, what if it doesn't work out? I read an interesting article um, the other day. It was titled, I Trusted God and My Life Fell Apart. Uh, maybe many of us like the book of Ruth because, once again, it's the sweet story where everyone lives happily ever after. But we know in real life 
It doesn't always work that way. The author of the article shared about his friend Biff, who was 20-something when he accepted Christ. Uh, He's 43 today. Uh, His wife uh, decided to divorce him, and he's hurt, and he's angry at God. The Lord didn't take care of him. The author states, at least not in the way Biff expected. And for you, maybe, you know, it's not divorce, but maybe it's another issue that you feel God has really disappointed you in. Or you're angry because God didn't come through for you. You know, what if that young couple I shared about earlier, what if they didn't get a good diagnosis? What if the diagnosis came out and said, you know, the cancer is rapidly spread and you have two months to live? You know, how would you feel as a young married couple in that situation? You have all these hopes and dreams about having children, settling into your careers, you know, even serving the Lord in some honorable way. But then, bam, you receive the diagnosis that you only have two months to live. You know, to properly answer this third question, it comes down to a matter of perspective. When asked, what if it doesn't work out? You have to come to terms with, what is that it for you? Is it a hope or dream you want fulfilled so you can have a happy life here on earth? The author of this article properly reminds us how scripture views life on earth. In James 4.14, he says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Elsewhere in Hebrews, we're reminded of people in the Old Testament who did not receive what they hoped for. Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter, and, and if you're familiar with it, you know the, the, the author talks about all these Old Testament characters like Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Enoch. And then in verse 13, after listing a whole bunch of these people, he says this. He says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So the first thing we should consider when thinking about what if it doesn't work out is from what perspective are we answering that question from? From an earthly perspective where our life is only a mist that will last for a short time and just vanish? Or from a more eternal perspective? Related to that is the second part of the answer, which is, do we recognize that from an internal perspective, God and his sovereignty allows certain things to happen to bring about greater good? You know, when we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we could say that was the most unjust act in history, right? You know, the horrific beating and death of a man, you know, of the most innocent man that there ever was or will be. Who was responsible for Christ's death? Evil religious leaders and men who were threatened by his acts? Well, yes, true. But remember, God was also responsible. The first part of Isaiah 53.10 states, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made it very clear that he didn't want to go through this suffering, this crucifixion. You know, he said, you know, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken away from me. From an earthly perspective, there was no good reason to go through this. But from an eternal perspective, he knew the suffering would bring about greater good, not only in the redemption of humans, 
but also greater glory for himself. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus, him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. The second part of Isaiah 53.10 into verse 11 also says something similar. And although the Lord made his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. In 1 Peter 1, we kind of actually looked at 1 Peter in our Sunday school today. Peter encouraged us, encouraged the believers with a similar perspective. I know this is hard to read, but beginning in verse 3, he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into into an inheritance which can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Answer this question. I would be happy now if. What's that if? If I got into the college I wanted, or grad school, or med school I wanted to go to, if I got that job promotion, if I was able to have a child, if I was able to get married, if I was able to pay off my bills, if I was cured from cancer. I mean, from an earthly perspective, these are all very good answers. But from an eternal perspective, there's only one right answer. Whatever words you use to say it, whatever form, you know, you want to use, it would come down to something like this. I would be happy now if I knew I was in step with God's leading in my life. Or I would be happy now if I knew Jesus was completely Lord over my life. That's it. The author of the article elaborates, when you find satisfaction in God alone and you don't need anything else for what makes you happy, you will experience a peace of heaven on earth. You can experience the future life of rest and contentment today. So what if it doesn't work out? From an eternal perspective, for those who are Christ followers, in the end, it will always work out. Because God is waiting for us, or has waiting for us, an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. So believe that God is working for your good even when you can't see it. Believe that God is working for your good even if it doesn't match your timing. And know that he has a perfect plan for your life even when you experience struggles and disappointment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth in your word. I thank you for the encouragement that it gives us. That for those of us who are struggling with different things, we do have hope in you. And we can have confidence knowing that you are working for our good, even when we can't see it, even when it's not according to our timing. Lord, may we have this faith and hope and confidence in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.